We're continuing our sermon series now, uh, a sermon series that we're calling Sanctifying the Ordinary. We are taking the ordinary things of life, like sleep, eating, work, and leisure, and we're asking the question, what does God have to say about those things? Does he have anything to say about those things? And he does. One of the things he has to say is 1 Corinthians 10.31, So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That covers all the ordinary things. All the ordinary things, the things that we just do 24 hours a day, God says, I have an assignment for those things. I have a reason for those things, and that is to glorify me, to draw attention to the Creator, to the one who's over it all and who's sustaining your life through these things. So that's what they're for. Our hope is that this series will help us regain a biblical understanding of how to glorify God in the so-called ordinary things. Today we're looking at what God has to say about our eating. What could be more ordinary than that, right? We do it all every day. Um, but not so ordinary when God comes into the picture. And my guess is that of all the four topics we're going to cover in this series, this one has the most potential to ruffle people's feathers, I think, to, to cause offense, because we all have various practices about what we eat and why, and some people have high passions about it, uh, strong opinions about what we should eat and why we should do that. So my guess is some feathers could get ruffled today, but if it's the Holy Spirit doing it, I'm okay with that. Uh, I did a quick search of Amazon books. I put in the word diet. I got 100,000 entries. I searched for food. I got 400,000 entries. So you got half a million books there, about food and eating that reveal there's a wide variety of opinion on this (laughs) and advice. Um, Here are some of the titles that reveal the passions behind this topic. Here's one, Fast Food Nation, the dark side of the all-American meal. Uh, Another one, Life-Changing Foods, Save Yourself and the Ones You Love with the Hidden Healing Powers of Fruits and Vegetables. Strong language there. If a person owns any book at all in their home, it's probably a cookbook. What we eat may be the stuff of ordinary life, but the reality is that food is very much on our minds, and there are a lot of opinions and passions about it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to let the Lord speak to us and tell us what we need to know in order to eat to the glory of God. And just as a heads up, I won't be giving you a Bible diet plan. Uh, And you'll see why. But God's word will and should affect what we eat and why. But let's pray before we hear what the Lord has to say about this. What we need right now, Lord, is open ears and open hearts. Um, This could seem like fluffy material talking about eating, but it can't be if you say there's a way to glorify you in it. In fact, we're commanded to do it. So, Lord, help us to obey your command, which is good for us and right to do. So, Lord, help us this morning and also to see how Jesus Christ makes it all a glorifying experience, how he redeems it all. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Like last week, we're going to develop a biblical theology of eating through the four stages of redemptive history, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So we're going to be referring to a lot of different texts. Let's start with creation and God's good gift of food. God's good gift of food. In a perfect world without sin, there was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, we know that because God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. He also said this in Genesis 2.9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God's very good creation included food that looked good and tasted good. Foods like honey. I mean, they had bees pollinating all these flowers so that fruit could grow. Proverbs 24, 13 says, My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. So one of the purposes for honey was so that we would understand how good wisdom is. Yeah, I got, a, I got an analogy for how good wisdom is. You know what honey is like? You know how good that is? That's how good wisdom is. Right? But we have to have honey to know. It's good. He says, eat it. Eat it. The Garden of Eden, after all, was a garden. <laughs> and it had food there, good food, tasty food for men and women to eat. They probably didn't discover chocolate right away. That takes some work, but I know they would have got there eventually. There would have been chocolate in a perfect world. Now, I should ask, answer a question here about so-called Bible diets, because uh, there's books with that title or something like it. We might think from Genesis that a vegan or vegetarian diet is the ideal, holy, Bible-sanctioned way to eat, because... It was all plant-based, and there was no mention of eating meat. Some have also looked to Daniel chapter 1 for support on that. You remember, Daniel and his friends, they get drafted into, uh, the unwillingly drafted into Babylon, where they're becoming uh, courtiers. They go into the king's court, and he wants to feed them certain things, and they say, no, I won't eat that. I only want to eat vegetables and drink water uh, for 10 days. And then after 10 days, they're... They're healthier than the other guys who are eating the king's food. So some people look to that chapter and say, yeah, yeah, the sanctioned way, the holy way to eat is just vegetables and, uh, and water. But remember this. Remember, the Bible's full of a lot of other things. Take in all that it has to say about a subject. So remember this. The sinless Savior Jesus, he not only served a fish dinner to 5,000 people, but he also ate fish and he did it in his glorified immortal body. He was a fish eater, along with things like bread. More than that, he declared all foods clean in Mark 7, 19, which included meats like pork that were even forbidden under the Old Covenant. In fact, that reality is what the Lord used to teach Peter that the Gentiles were not unclean. When he gave him that vision in Acts 10 of all the unclean animals and even reptiles and birds coming down from heaven in a big sheet. And he said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Paul himself said to Christians in 1 Corinthians 10.25, eat 
whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So beware of so-called Bible diets that claim a holy Bible-sanctioned list of things you can and should eat. The scriptures rather teach a lot of freedom in this area, though not without some boundaries, which we'll come back to. As to whether or not Adam and Eve could have eaten meat before the fall, I don't know. I just know that now I can, and I'm very happy about that. (laughs) Food is God's gift to us. Now, why do we need it? Functionally, it's because we can't live without it. But as with sleep, it is another way we can see the difference between ourselves and God. It's the Creator who has no needs. But we have needs. He doesn't have to eat anything. We do. We do. We're dependent. We must receive food from the hand of God, specifically. We are dependent upon Him. This is the truth of Psalm 145, 15 to 16 which says, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Our food comes ultimately from God. He provided it. You may have gotten a job and got paid and got money to go to the grocery store. And you got it, you prepared it, and you ate it. And it all looks like it's you. But Psalm 145 says, no, ultimately, God gave it to you. God fed you today. God provided that. He's the creator. You're the creature. You're dependent on him. It honors him to recognize that, to give him his due. I think that's where the habit of saying grace or praying before meals originates. It was just a moment, and it is a moment for many of us to stop and say, this came from God. This is his provision. To receive that with thanksgiving is to honor him, is to eat to the glory of God. But sin has corrupted that experience of our eating, and that leads to the next stage of our biblical understanding about this. Let's talk about how sin has affected eating. We'll start with how Adam's sin affects it. If you think that eating is just an ordinary thing that God doesn't care much about, consider the fact that the sin which brought the downfall of mankind involved eating, eating something that was forbidden. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So Adam, Eve, I've given you a banquet of delicious food and a variety of food. I'm only going to make one tree off limits. That one you can't have. But all this other stuff, go for it. But they didn't obey. They ate the fruit and they died. The wages of sin is death. It starts with the spiritual death of separation from God, which ends in the eternal death of God's punishment, unless we're rescued from that by Jesus Christ. But it starts with that spiritual death. They died that day, but physical death took longer 
That came later, but that's the natural consequence of the spiritual death. If you cut yourself off from God, who is the giver of life, it's going to manifest itself in your death, which is ultimately, in, in our experience, the physical death and all the ailments that lead to it. That's all the result of that sin in the garden. We've inherited that kind of a world now. We've inherited all the physical ailments and death itself. And here's what it looks like. For example, food allergies. Now we have those, right? If you've got a peanut allergy and you eat peanut butter, you could die. Same with shellfish, tree nuts, and other things that people are allergic to. They should have been God's good gifts that blessed you, but now your body reacts against it. We got that from Adam. Many of you know all about that. Um, you have to read labels, you have to confine yourself to certain foods, or you can't function. We inherited that from Adam. Adam and Eve didn't need to look for gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, nut-free, carb-free, or non-GMO foods. You know, they could just grow stuff and eat it. <laughs> now we have to watch out. We, we inherited that from them. That's part of how their sin affects us. They're also eating disorders. So whatever the causes are of anorexia or bulimia, they weren't there in a perfect world. Starving yourself or binging and purging were never God's intention for us, but in a fallen world, those things are now a reality. That all traces back to Adam and Eve. Sometimes other people's sin is a factor in your eating. Uh, if you get food poisoning at a restaurant... And death seems like a good alternative to you when you're on the bathroom floor. <laughs> You've probably been affected by somebody else's sin. They, they were negligent. They didn't care about human life. Who knows? Didn't follow the codes for restaurants. And in the moment, you're very aware <laughs> of how you're being affected by somebody's sin. But I think the one that matters the most for us right now is how your own sin affects your eating how your own sin affects it. You might not be able to do much about what Adam did or what the restaurant owner's doing, but you can, do, you can do something about your own sins. God has given us the Holy Spirit by whom we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Uh, we are free from sin's penalty and its power in Jesus Christ. So much can be said here, but I want to suggest what I think is the biggest temptation we have in how we approach eating. And that temptation is to look to food as a god rather than as a gift. Um, by that I mean we can treat food like it's our functional savior on any given day. And if that sounds far-fetched, listen to what Paul says of some people in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. He says, for many of whom I often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul is saying that some people set their minds on Earthly things, meaning the things of this world have their full attention. We could even say has their devotion. And among those things that have their full attention and devotion is the food they eat. 
Their God is their belly, or as the New American Standard translation has it, their God is their appetite. What, what directs their lives, what they always think about when making their plans is, how do I satisfy my cravings? And anything that directs your life is your functional God. It's what's ruling you. Here's what that can look like in our lives. We can eat because we're anxious. And eating makes us less anxious. Maybe because at least it gives us a sense of control. that I, I, I can control something in my life at least. So it becomes a replacement for Christ because now food is what's going to keep me from being anxious instead of Christ and his promises. We can eat in order to be comforted. Well, if nothing else is going right in my world, at least I have a bucket of ice cream to console me instead of the comforter, the Holy Spirit. We can eat because we want more and more and more because it tastes good and not have any self-control. But the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. See, any or all, any or all those things can lead to excess, eating to excess and there's a biblical word for that, which is gluttony. Proverbs 23, 20. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. What drunkards and gluttons have in common is partaking to excess. Whether that excess is from a desire to reduce anxiety or to comfort ourselves or because we just don't want to stop, it isn't eating to the glory of God. It has become a functional God that is directing our lives instead of the true God, Jesus Christ. Now, I think a word about gluttony would be helpful here. Gluttony is not about enjoying food. Later, we're going to see that enjoying food is part of the gift of God. Gluttony isn't about enjoying food. It's about enjoying being full. It's about silencing the craving. It's the appetite that must be obeyed all the time. And you can't necessarily discern this in someone else just by looking at whether they're large or small. A person can be large for reasons that have nothing to do with gluttony, and a person can be small and be gluttonous. Metabolisms are different, for example. Gluttony is a matter of the heart more than it is a matter of the bathroom scale. But eating to excess isn't the only temptation we have when it comes to food. Here's another way our bellies can become our God. It's when we look to healthy eating as our salvation. Healthy eating as my salvation. Not to say that healthy eating is bad. It's a good thing. Some of us have medical conditions, food allergies. It can be the difference between being able to function or not being able to function. If you eat healthy, it's a good thing. But it isn't our God. It isn't our salvation. And yet, it is often portrayed that way. So take the title of one of the books I mentioned earlier. Life-Changing Foods, Save Yourself and the ones you love with the hidden healing powers of fruits and vegetables. That's a salvation message. That's a gospel. You want to be saved? Eat fruits
We're good now. Thank you, technical guru. I think I'm going to put this in a safe place. <laughs> right down there. Okay, ignore the wires hanging out. All right. That's the salvation message, right? The title of that book. Eat fruits and vegetables, save yourself. That's how you'll make your life great. That's how you'll be good looking and full of energy and the envy of your friends, which is all the things that you need, right, in order to be a satisfied person, in order to have a really meaningful life. And you can get it if you eat fruits and vegetables. That's a salvation message. I exercise to a workout video a few times a week. And at the end of every session is this commercial that they, for what they call the healthiest meal of the day. So it's a breakfast drink that they describe as this collection of superfoods, powerful antioxidants, and vital nutrients, and other amazing-sounding things. And they're all gathered from indigenous peoples around the world, so you know they have to be good for you. And everybody that's drinking it is happy, and they're fit, and they're good-looking, and they probably have a high-paying job. <laughs> they're not really selling a breakfast drink. They're selling salvation. We can buy into that. We can start to eat healthy, not because it's wise, but because it's my hope for life. I must be thin. I must be strong. I must defy aging. I must buy the healthiest meal of the day, even though I can't afford it. I must shop only at natural grocers and never at King Supers. I must never go off my strict regimen of green smoothies and free-range chicken. Why? Because good health equals satisfying life. Good health equals happiness. Good health equals my salvation. But that's a different gospel that's at odds with the true gospel, which says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What we need to be saved from is God's penalty for our sins, for disobedience to his commands. What we need is to be saved from the eternal death. What you eat doesn't address that. It doesn't even keep you from dying physically. You won't stay healthy forever, no matter what you do. You need Jesus Christ to bear your sins on the cross so that you can be saved for eternity. You see, Christ is our true food for salvation. Jesus said in John 6, 54 and 55, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. That's shocking language, isn't it? It sounds like he's encouraging cannibalism. But we need shocking language sometimes to get our attention. What Jesus is saying is that we're to look to him for salvation and nowhere else, including the food we eat. Only Jesus can satisfy the soul and only Jesus can ultimately save the body and give you a brand new one that will live forever and won't be plagued by peanut allergies and everything else that plagues you. When it comes to salvation, what's in your heart is more important than what's in your stomach. 
When Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark 7, 19, it was because, here's what he said, what goes into a person enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. The heart is the issue. What you believe is the issue, not what you eat. We wouldn't tell a missionary to an impoverished third world country that they're doing something wrong because they don't have access to healthy food. We'd respect them for being expended for Christ, shortening their life probably for the sake of reaching people with the good news of salvation in Jesus. We'd say, good deal. Because food is not ultimate. Christ is ultimate. Food is not our Savior. Christ is our Savior. What you eat will not determine your eternal destiny, but what's in your heart will. So put your trust in Christ to save you. And when you do that, your temptation to make a functional God out of earthly things like food will decrease. And then food takes on its proper place in your life, which is a gift from God. And that brings us to our next point, which is how Christ redeems eating. How Christ redeems eating. This is the redemption part of the storyline. Jesus comes to restore things back to their proper place. He comes to make it possible to eat to the glory of God rather than make what we eat our functional God. So let's get specific with application here. How does Christ redeem eating? What does it look like to eat to the glory of God? To keep it simple, I just want to say two things. The first one is this. Enjoy food as a gift from God. (laughs) Enjoy food as a gift from God. This is something that ties back to our Ecclesiastes series. Ecclesiastes 8.15 says, I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So to eat and drink and to be joyful is commended to us. It goes with us. In our toil, it goes with us in the life that God has given us under the sun. So the simple pleasure of a tasty dish is a gift from God and there is no shame in enjoying it. Provided that it's received with thankfulness as a gift from God. That's the qualification in 1 Timothy 4, 3-5. Where Paul said there are those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So did you hear that? God created good foods to be received with thanksgiving. It is made holy, that is, it sanctifies the ordinary experience of eating when your mind is informed by the Word of God and with prayer. To eat to the glory of God looks like having a piece of chocolate cake, if you're not allergic to it, and you eat that thing and you say, oh, that is so good. Thank you, God. (laughs) Or it could look like you have a simple mac and cheese dinner. It's not especially great, but you think, Lord, 
You've provided me with food for another day. You are merciful to me. Food isn't always tasty, but it should always be received with thanksgiving. The point that I think needs to be made here is God has given us food as a legitimate pleasure, not to mention a necessity for our life. It's the devil who wants to rob us of legitimate pleasures that God gives us. Jesus said of the devil that he's a thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The devil steals the legitimate pleasure of eating by tempting us to excess. Or he kills the pleasure of eating by turning it into a slavish pursuit of health, teaching us to abstain from things that God called good. The devil destroys legitimate gifts from God by twisting them into substitutes for God. But when we receive food as a gift from God instead of as a replacement for him, then we're eating to the glory of God. So if you can afford to eat at Rhodesia Grill, and you can get an unlimited supply of six different varieties of steaks for your anniversary, I say eat that without shame. I say enjoy it. (laughs) I think the Lord says that. The Lord calls us to freedom. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. We can enjoy God's gift of food. I'm a little passionate about that just because the devil wants to always make Christianity seem so dull and lifeless. And you've got to deny everything that would possibly make you happy. And God is saying, no, I've given you gifts. In their proper place, enjoy them. It's part of my love for you. Just don't make too much out of it. Don't turn it into a substitute for me. But enjoy it. And don't be feeling guilty later if you did. (laughs) Here's, Here's another way we eat to the glory of God. We use wisdom in what we eat. (laughs) Use wisdom in what you eat. You knew that I had to throw in a qualifier, a boundary, right? And I must because there are boundaries to our freedom. We're not free to just do whatever we want. It isn't good for us, and it doesn't glorify God. God's given us a body, this physical thing, for His purposes, and we're to be good stewards of that body so we can accomplish His purposes. 1 Corinthians 6 speaks to this. There was a slogan going around the church of Corinth where they were saying, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. What they meant by that was your body is permitted to have anything that it craves. Food restrictions are irrelevant because what happens with your body is not important, only what happens in your spirit. And that was their thinking. And they were using that to justify other things like sexual immorality. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's only what matters is what I do in the spirit. Paul replied to that by saying, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's 1 Corinthians 6.13. Paul is saying, what you do with your body matters very much to the Lord because he is for the body. He gave you a body and he wants you to walk in holiness with your body. So no, you aren't free to just do and eat whatever you want. Use your body for what God made it for. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10. So are your eating habits helping you or hurting you in walking in the good works that God has called you to do? That's the question. The question is not, what will make me skinny? The question is, what will make me more fit for the call of God on my life? The 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards took that very seriously. In his works, volume 1, we're told this about how he approached eating. It says, He carefully observed the effects of the different sorts of food and selected those which best suited his constitution and rendered him most fit for mental labor. In his diary, he wrote why this was important to him. He said, By a sparingness in diet and eating as much as may be what is light and easy of digestion, I shall doubtless be able to think more clearly and shall gain time. By lengthening out my life, shall need less time for digestion after meals, shall be able to study more closely without injury to my health, shall need less time for sleep, shall more seldom be troubled with the headache. But do you see where he's going with all that? I don't know that that has to be your exact method, but he's thinking through, what is going to help me in my role? I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I preach. What will help me do that and what will detract from that? So he thought it through, very methodically in his case. Have you ever thought about what your food is doing to you? If it's not helping you be more fit for knowing and serving the Lord and walking in holiness, it may be time to reevaluate and change your habits. And God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit for change. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 No habits of eating have greater power than the Holy Spirit has. And God's given them to you for change, if change is needed. God calls us to use wisdom in what we eat so we're able to do what he's called us to do. Now that's where modern research and the right books on the subject can be helpful. Now I'm not a, an expert in nutrition, not a food scientist, so I'm not qualified to tell you everything you should and shouldn't eat. But even experts disagree on what you should eat. I remember one time being told, Eggs are bad for you because they increase your cholesterol. And then I learned that no, eggs are good for you because they have protein and good cholesterol. And then I learned that no, only cage-free eggs that are organic are good for you. So it's a moving target. That's why there's half a million books on this. So which one are you going to believe? I'd say do your own research. Do a Jonathan Edwards kind of research. What makes me feel awful? <laughs> okay, I probably won't eat that. <laughs> What makes me gain a ton of weight? I should probably stay away from that. What makes my vital signs plummet so that I'm in the hospital? Okay, I'll stay away from that. Do your own research. And avail yourself of the generally accepted common wisdom. Obviously, some things are just not good for you. In 2010, they introduced a new food at the Minnesota State Fair. We used to go to that fair. That was part, partly why he went there, was to see what new crazy food they were going to bring out. And in 2010, they brought out a cheeseburger with bacon that was coated with chocolate on a Krispy Kreme donut bun. 1,000 calories. 
So you, may, you might eat one of those just to say you did it, but one every night, you're going to an early grave. We all know that. <laughs> all right? Avail yourself of wisdom. Um, take care of the body God's given to you. The Lord is for the body. He's even going to give you one forever. He's not indifferent to what you do with it. To eat to the glory of God means you care about what you put into you, how it affects your health, because the Lord's for the body. Ask yourself if eating is making you more fit for the calling of God on your life. Make any adjustments necessary. That's the whole of my diet advice. One last point to make. This has to do with the consummation, the end of all things. Eating looks ahead to the eternal banquet. The eternal banquet. John the Apostle, he was on the island of Patmos where he received a vision of the end of all things. Call it the book of Revelation. And in chapter 19, here's what the angel in the vision, uh, he wrote what the angel in the vision told him. Listen to verses 7 and 9 from uh, chapter 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The eternal happiness of the believer is described as a marriage supper. It's a constant celebration. It's a constant feast, if you will. It's a celebration of Jesus and his bride in the church in a honeymoon that never ends and never gets old, and it will involve real food and drink. You will eat and drink in heaven. Pretty sure about that. Here's some texts that point to that from the Old and New Testament. Isaiah 25, 6-8. Isaiah spoke prophetically of the end of all things. He said, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." He's definitely talking about the end there, and he keeps using the word food. <laughs> a rich feast. Rich food. Luke 22, 28 to 30. Jesus said this to his disciples. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, was Jesus and were Isaiah speaking metaphorically about something else? Or will we actually eat real food, rich food, with Jesus in the new heaven and earth? I think Jesus answered that in his resurrected body. In Luke 24, 40 to 43, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus ate broiled fish in his immortal body. And believers are going to get an immortal body like him. 
So if he ate fish, shouldn't we expect that we will eat as well? Maybe not because we need it anymore, but just because it's a gift of God. It seems that the marriage supper of the Lamb will actually include supper. We will eat and drink at Jesus' table in his kingdom. That's one way we'll celebrate him for eternity. Let me just close with this. Let's eat and drink to the glory of God. Enjoy God's good gift of food. Give it its limited but proper place in life as a gift and not as a savior. Use wisdom. Be a good steward of your body. And let every meal in this life point us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Receive your food with thanksgiving as a foretaste of the eternal banquet to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are no unordinary, no ordinary things, no unimportant things in this world. Because they either are something that we do to your glory or something that we do to self, for self, and that makes them, that makes them important. Would you help us in this, Lord? Would you help us in the ordinary things? Godliness and holiness are lived out in the ordinary things, so help us, Lord, to receive from you all the good and to not let the devil destroy the genuine, legitimate pleasures of it and not let us get distracted to some other source of hope besides you. Lord, we thank you that you're over all things. We thank you for the eternity to come. We thank you for the marriage supper of the Lamb. May we all get there by trusting in Jesus, the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.